Americans are overconsuming, so eating less, you know, is a good thing. On the other hand, the global meat consumption is expected to increase by 50 to 100 percent by 2050. So we actually need a lot more animal protein. So why not talk about Americans scaling back our food consumption generally, which would include meat, but the U.S. is a fairly low emission producer of meat. So we should probably be exporting that surplus. So if we eat less, somebody else could eat it. If we don't produce it, that gap is going to be filled by countries like Brazil. You know, that may not have as good a, you know, carbon footprint as the beef that's produced here. For American, you know, uh, producers, it's like, you know, if you're saying we want Americans to eat less, but we want you to sell more because you're a low carbon producer. Well, that, that's not necessarily a message I think that uh, livestock producers would be afraid to hear. Uh, they may feel like there's an opportunity there. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. It seems like we know all kinds of things. There's nutritional information, dietary advice, scientific information on health. It's it's out there. It's for everybody. It's available to us. But then why is it that we've got all this good information? Why do people still make bad choices when it comes to food? Well, uh, I've got somebody with me today that's working on the answers to that. He's even going to put it in a book uh, that's, that's coming out. And he talks to people around the world. I'm happy to welcome... Jack Bobo, and Jack is a food futurist, and he's, Jack, you keep your head in this kind of thing all the time, and uh, for somebody that's studying what's going on with food and trying to project what the future of food looks like, is it a little frustrating sometimes or exasperating? You think, well, good grief, we've got all this information out here. Why, why is it that people just kind of insist on coming to the wrong conclusions. Uh, well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you and to talk to you. So my, my new book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. You know, I, I was really interested in this topic because I, I was writing some blog posts about the psychology of food and, you know, how our brains sometimes lead us to make bad decisions. There are things like the halo effect where we hear that something's low fat. So we kind of assume that it must be low in calories and then maybe we eat more of it than we should. And, and so I was writing a lot about that and I began to wonder, well, why is it when we're at a point in time when we know more about health and nutrition than we ever have in the history of the planet? and we've never been more obese. We have more healthy food options in the grocery store today than we ever have, and we've never been more obese. And so I, I began to do some research onto this question. It's like, how did we get here? And I think something that will really surprise people, I mean, we, we know that Americans, you know, 42% are obese, you know, well over two thirds are overweight or obese. And so we kind of think that that's part of American culture now. But if we went back to 1975, I think people would be surprised to know that only 9% of Americans were obese in 1975, and that's less than the number of Europeans who were obese, which was at 10%. So dramatic changes in our lifetime. And so 
how did we get here was sort of the question that I first had. And what I realized, it's not just because we're snacking all the time. It's not just because, you know, there are uh, foods that are just unbelievably tasty in the grocery store. It's really about everything. Our food environment has changed dramatically. And all of the things that we're really doing to try to fix the problem are aimed at, you know, the food we eat. You know, let's count calories, let's walk more, let's, you know, reduce our consumption. But the drivers of the obesity epidemic are really the food environment itself. You know, you think about the dinner plate. Well, in 1960, a dinner plate was nine inches. Today, a dinner plate is 12 inches. You know, if you put 40 or 50% more food on your plate every day, you're going to gain weight. And so those are kinds of things that we don't even notice that are happening. And if you don't know that it's happening, you can't guard against it. And so there are all of these things. And so uh, in my book, what I really talk about is what would it take to reshape our food environment so that it delivered healthy outcomes without us even thinking about it? You know, you got me off on another track, though, for a second. I've got to, I got to exit ramp here for a minute because when you talk about things changing so much in like the mid 70s that's true on so many things i mean if you look at the environment it's sort of like the mid 70s which hard to believe is nearly 50 years now uh, but the the, the mid 70s we didn't have the same degree of, of climate concerns, but not only that, but just the, uh, the carbon that we were emitting and methane and everything else. We could kind of live with it. I mean, if we had stayed relative to those levels, let alone our dietary policies too, we'd be better off today and the planet. Now, that's going broader than talking about the food question itself. But it does even have implications for food production. And I think we'll probably circle back and talk a little bit about the about the food production too. But anyway, I'm I'm just kind of obsessed lately with <laughs> thinking uh, nostalgically and saying on so many of these issues, both for us and for the planet, that uh, something's gone haywire in the last in the last 50, 40, 50 years. And so now I'll let you get back on track on the food part of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you're, you're definitely onto something. So on one hand, you know, we're just eating more than we need to. And that has environmental implications, you know, for the planet. Um, you know, we, we're obviously wasting a third of our food anyway. And so if you're eating more than you need and you're wasting a third more of the food that you don't need to eat anyway, you know, that's contributing to the problem. Uh, but one of the things I found really interesting in my research is that in many ways, our uh, society, you know, which is very much focused on supersizing everything, that the entire culture of supersizing can be traced back to the mad genius of one man in the 1960s. His name was David Wallerstein, and he worked for a uh, chain of movie theaters, and he was given the job of increasing sales at the concession stand, which is where the theaters make most of their money back then, just as they do today. And he was trying everything to get people to eat more popcorn and, you know, two for one deals and all sorts of things. And he just couldn't get people to come back for a second bag of popcorn. And it eventually it struck him. What if the reason people won't buy a second bag is because they're kind of embarrassed, you know, that people will think they're gluttonous if, you know, they go and get a second bag of popcorn. 
So he decided to offer a jumbo size popcorn. And of course, sales skyrocketed. So does sales skyrocket. Everything went through the roof. And he invented in many ways this idea of offering a larger portion. And then of course he went and he worked with McDonald's and he told uh, Ray Kroc, he's like, hey, you know, you gotta offer a larger size. And Ray Kroc said, nah, people want a second bag of fries. They'll just go get another bag of fries. <laughs> of course we know that's not true. And he eventually convinced him to do it. And in 1972, they introduced the large fry at McDonald's. And of course the rest is history. You know, everybody does it now, but there was a time at which that was just, you know, a novel concept. And so it actually, you know, took us decades to get where we are. You know, it seems so obvious now, but there was a time when, you know, that was just a, a breakthrough marketing concept. And one guy kind of owns that in some ways. Wow. Well, some of us will remember going to movies and um, it's been a while. It's been a while looking forward to doing that again someday. And, and when you talk about that, and I think about those really huge, huge tubs of popcorn. And if I recall, if you buy the big ones now, you get it filled the second time for free. And it doesn't work with the, the medium size. So not only were you getting a huge amount of this popcorn, but now, like I say, if you empty it out, you can go back and get it filled again for free. Yep. So it's like, how could you possibly make it even more? And I think one other thing, Jack, I wonder about mm -hmm. is that somewhere in then they were talking about the, the butter flavorings too. And if I'm not mistaken, it was, um, what, what is it, the word I'm trying to think of? It's, it's, it's uh, the trans fats, uh -huh. the trans yeah. fat recipes and the butters that they were using also tended to be almost addictive and, and yeah. you couldn't possibly get enough of them, made you hungrier and thirstier. And, and I suppose was the same guy <laughs> come up with the giant drinks that went with the giant popcorns? No. So actually that goes back to 7-Eleven uh, stores back in the 1970s. And back then it was a struggling chain and a representative for Coca-Cola went into a California store, uh, store and was talking to the regional rep. And he said, hey, I've got these really big cups. What do you think? And he said, they're just too big. You know, no, nobody's going to buy them. And he's like, well, I'll give you the box for free if you'll try them out. And so the guy sent it to his best performing 7-Eleven store. A week later, he gets a phone call and the guy's like, hey, we sold them all, can we get more? And that's the origin of the big gulp was that somebody convinced them, they didn't think it would, anybody would buy it. And of course, it just took off. And you know that's how we ended up with supersized portions of soft drinks. You know, uh, one of the ways that society seems to g try to deal with this um, are taxations. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've had taxes in New York. I'm not sure where else on large sugary drinks. Has that worked? Well, so New York did not pass. Uh, they were going to, you know, tax those, the large cups as opposed to the, the sugar in it. Um, and people opposed that because they considered it, you know, sort of a, a nanny tax. And even people who don't like soda don't like the government telling them what to do. On the other hand, Philadelphia was able to pass that. Berkeley, California did. Uh, Mexico has a tax on uh, sugar, uh, sugary beverages. And so, there's definitely evidence that you can lower consumption 
you know, with a tax. It doesn't, it's not surprising. When it's done by a community, though, what you end up seeing is that um, purchases in surrounding communities go up, <laughs> which, you know, people aren't stupid. They'll go to the next county if it's cheaper. Um, but in a place like Mexico, it has caused declines or led to a decline. The problem, though, is that we, we don't know whether or not those declines in soda consumption or, you know, sweetened beverages are offset by increases in sugary snacks or even beer or, so, or juices and other things. So we haven't been able to connect the, that behavioral change to a health outcome. And, and that's kind of important because when you're going to have a policy change that people don't like, you know, people who drink soda don't like it, people who make soda don't like it. So if people don't like it, it needs to really, really work. And right now we know we can shift behavior. We don't know if we can improve health. And so in, in my book, I talk about what would be an alternative to a tax that maybe people wouldn't hate quite as much. And so my book focuses on how do we create behavioral change, but with to do anything. And so one of the examples I give is um, think about Subway. Now, there are about uh, 40,000 Subways around the world. Subways are known for giving you free refills. If you go in and you order a drink and you drink it in the restaurant, they give you a 21 ounce cup. So now imagine if the 7 million people eating at uh, Subway every day were given a 12 ounce cup when they dine in the restaurant as the default. You can go back as often as you want. Do you really care? You know, some people might and they'll ask for the big cup, but you know, some people won't. Well, the difference between a 12 ounce cup and a 21 ounce cup, you know, is obviously, uh, you know, you've got the nine ounces, but many people will go get a drink, drink it, go back get a half a cup and leave. So it's really more like an entire 12 ounce difference between the two. Well, that's 150 calories times, you know, 7 million people, you know, that's like a billion calories every day that could potentially be reduced just by changing the cup size. Now, Imagine if every restaurant that offers free refills used a, a default cup. And so that's what this is really about. How do you make the, the right choice, the easy choice, without denying people the ability to do whatever it is that they want to do? And in this, the example I'm giving, this restaurant actually makes more money because they give away less soda. And consumers can go back as often as they want, so they don't really feel like they're being told what to do. So that's the difference between sort of a you know, forcing people to do something and nudging them using behavioral science to get them to do what you want them to do. You know, one other change that I can think of going back to the mid-70s is there didn't used to be very many Mexican restaurants. Now, sure, in the Southwest, there was, a, there was some Mexican restaurants, but not as many as there are today. And so, you know, if you, you traveled to, you know, your neck of the woods, you had a hard time finding a decent Mexican restaurant, and, you know, back then in Washington, D.C. or Boston or Philadelphia or Detroit. And now they're on every corner. And the thing that also differentiates these, I love them, uh, was bringing baskets of chips to the table. And they're usually free refills. And in fact, one of the complaints you hear about places like you know, Chipotle or somewhere, they don't give you free refills. You have to go buy another basket. But the, yep. and I'm, I almost don't want to know the answer to this because <laughs> I, I, because I have to confess, um, oftentimes they're filling the basket up <laughs> when I go. And 
the salsa is the healthy thing. I should just like have one chip and keep reusing it, you know, just to be able to take the salsa down. I don't know. Does it become part of that uh, hall of shame with the, with the popcorn? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it becomes a hall of shame. I mean, you know, as long as they're refilling it, you're not sort of ordering it, you know, people can kind of ignore what they're doing and mindless eating is, is just one of the problems. You know, we eat those chips while we're talking to people. And, yeah. you know, we have no idea, did I finish one basket or did I finish three baskets? You know, and so you think about how many calories might've been in the burrito, but you don't think about, you know, all of those chips because you have no way of counting it. And so that's a lot of what's happening is that, you know, we go back to restaurants that give us too much food. Yeah. You know, we think of it as good value. And yet if you eat twice as much as you need, is that really good value? <laughs> and uh, one of the examples I, I like to give is, uh, you know, Cheesecake Factory is obviously known for just, you know, enormous portion sizes. And a few years ago, I was going there with my, my family for Father's Day, and I wanted to teach my, kid about portion, my kids about portion sizes. So I order the steak and mashed potatoes and green beans, and the plate is put in front of me. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed because I wanted it to be overflowing with food so that they would understand the lesson. And I looked at it, I'm like, I can totally eat all of that. But unlike most people, I took a nine inch plate out of my wife's purse and I replated the food. <laughs> and when I did that, it totally filled up the nine inch plate twice. It was two full adult size meals, but it looked like very little food on the plate. So then I took a tape measure out of my wife's purse and really embarrassed my kids. The plate was 15 inches wide and 12 inches deep. So, you know, it held like two and a half times more food, you know, than the other plate. And so no wonder it looked like so little. And that's part of the problem is that we decide how much food we can eat by eyeballing it. You look at your plate, you look at the food and you think I can eat it or I can't eat it. And, you know, that's just part of the problem is if the plate gets bigger, we just assume that it's the same amount of food. We don't actually, you know, we can't adjust for plate sizes. Well, in some of this, uh, I mean, I, I get it what you're describing here, but then there's just an, an, an indulgence and people think, mm -hmm. you know, this has been a rotten year. And if I'm going to go out, I want to make a count. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to splurge. Uh, I know it would be better for me to eat carrots than uh, a big stack of French fries and a chocolate milkshake and a hamburger with onions and pickles and all this stuff on it. However, I've had a rough year and who knows if I'm going to be around for another year. Let's let's go for it. I mean, how do you deal with that kind of indulgence where people are trading right. off and saying, uh, I owe this to myself. I know I'm going to be sorry in the morning, but the heck with it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, and that's part of the psychology of, of all of this. And so what if, though, when you went into uh, the Cheesecake Factory, they said, would you like half of that to go before you eat? In other yeah. words, you get that to go bag. So instead of eating two meals for the price of one, you get two meals for the price of one and you get to have the second one tonight or, you know, the next day, I feel like we'd actually consider that better value and we're not insulting the restaurant. You know, they're actually, you know, helping us at that point. 
You know, Jack, you raised an interesting point there because we've gotten used to takeout in 2020. We were taking out food. And and maybe, and I remember the day when they used to say doggy bags when they were pretending they were taking food home for the dog. Uh, right. Nobody does that anymore. You don't ask for a doggy bag. Everybody's pretty upfront about the idea. But I kind right. of wonder, maybe after a year of getting in the habit of taking bags away that you weren't sitting in a restaurant anyway, it might be easier to transition into what you're saying is to say, you know, just put half of that in. It'll be lunch tomorrow. Yep. Yeah. And that's where, you know, we want to work with restaurants. We're not, they're not the enemy. You know, they give us lots of food because we come back, you know, it's not like they want us to overeat. They just know that if you don't give a certain amount of food, people, you know, aren't going to consider it good value. And so an, an example of what that might look like is what if when you go to Subway to use that as an example, again, and you buy that foot long sub that they actually take the two pieces and they give an extra twist to the wrapper for one half of it. So in other words, you open it, you eat it, and now you have to actually open up what seems like a second sandwich. And again, in psychology terms, this is something called unit bias. So that, you know, if you get a hamburger, well, that's one hamburger. But if you get two half hamburgers, you kind of think of it as two hamburgers. You know, we've all done this. We've gone to a, a you know, a business lunch and they give you those half sandwiches, you know, and we usually just take a half. We don't take two pieces because kind of would feel like, oh, you know, I'm taking, you know, two sandwiches. And so you can use that little, that moment of hesitation. Do I need to open this to get a second meal? Because you know, once you take one or two bites, then it doesn't make sense to leave it. It doesn't make sense to throw it away. And so, you know, you're kind of stuck with, I might as well finish it off. You know, Jack, that's that makes sense. And then I also wonder about economics because coming out of a recession and uh, and really restaurants are having a hard time getting workers back to work. Mm -hmm. And so places that we're paying minimum wage plus tips are paying $20, $25 an hour to try to get somebody to wait staff. And most of the restaurants haven't been able to open. When they do and they pay more people, more to come back to work, uh, those plates that you were getting for uh, eleven ninety five for a plate of something at Chili's or someplace, it's going to be $18 each. And so um, don't you think that people would look at this inevitable uh, higher prices for food and, and it helps them rationalize that paying it when they know that they get a second meal? So they get right. one they can they can take home and have leftovers. Yeah, and you know the restaurants don't want to really reduce the food so amount because again people won't think it's good value. Uh, so so I think you're right that this is an, a moment where we could actually begin to reset that relationship with the food that we're eating, and people do want good value, but you know it's only good value you know if you end up healthier because of it. You know if you let if you end up less wealthy and less healthy, it's probably not good value. Well, a lot of what you're talking about is volume. Uh, I mean, there's other choices that people know that they're making. I mean, you know that uh, that if you were making the decision between uh, French fries and, <laughs> and carrots, um, there's a 
find anybody that doesn't know that the carrots are better for you. They know, but they're, right. they're not making, in that case, it's not just a volume question or an indulgence question. It's just kind of like, I'm not going to go to the nutritional side. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to go what really makes me happy. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Look, nine out of 10 Americans do not eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, you know, but pretty much a hundred percent of us know that we should. Yeah. And so, so we're, you know, it's in some ways, it's just not that complicated. We need to eat less and move more, but it is ridiculously hard to do. But remember back in 1960, you know, people were cooking with, you know, um, you know, uh, pork fat and, you know, bacon grease and all of these things. And somehow they weren't obese. Yeah. So, you know, and they, they weren't, you know, they didn't have access to all of the different, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables that we do today. So, so there is a volume question to it, but you're right. One of the things that would be really exciting is if we could find a way to make the vegetables in particular, just taste amazing because if they were really, really good, we'd fill up more of our plate with them. Mm -hmm. And if we filled up more of our plate, you know, the meat would just get a little bit smaller on the plate, you know, which not, you don't have to get rid of it, but you know, you fill up your plate with the thing you enjoy the most. And so um, one of the things that uh, Google has actually been doing a lot of work in this area, you know, they've been trying, they, they give free food to their, their employees and, you know, it's like five-star restaurant kind of food. And they found that people were like gaining a lot of weight in their first year at Google. And so then they started trying to implement some of these behavioral changes to, to shift how people eat. And one of the barriers that they ran into was just making the vegetables great. So they actually partnered with the Culinary Institute of America to create a 72-hour course to train chefs to make vegetables better. And because it's their belief that it's like, if people love it, they'll eat more of it. If it's not good, you know, it just doesn't matter how, how much you tell them to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's that difference between information and, you know, taste, you know, lead with flavor. Actually went to Google and um, among other things, saw the farm to table program that they had at Google and went to the cafeteria a couple different times. One of the first places I had a cauliflower crust pizza before now you can get them in every grocery store. And um, it's delicious. <laughs> and so uh, now let's switch for a minute. Where does this apply to um, what comes from supermarkets? I mean, how the uh, your approach at looking at, at decisions that we're making, we're making decisions when we're going out to eat, right. but we're also making decisions when we go to the supermarket. How does, how does that play out there? Well, so a, a grocery store today has tens of thousands more products in it than a grocery store in 1980. So one is they're just, we're overwhelmed with choice. And psychology tells us that the more choices you have to make, the worse your choices will get. And this is based on something mental fatigue. So it's like, you know, when you're tired after a long day's work, people say you shouldn't go to the grocery store. It's not just because you're hungry, it's because you're tired. And we make bad decisions when we're tired and making decisions makes us mentally tired. And so because of that, you know, there's like no place worse to be making decisions about food than a grocery store. And it's even worse for people who are on a fixed food budget because they're not just going in saying, do I want the organic, you know, potatoes or do I want the regular ones? Because that's not really a choice if money's not an object. 
you know, they're in there deciding, you know, quantities and per unit cost and, you know, how many meals can I get out of this and do I know how to prepare it? So it's really, really exhausting for people who have the least resources uh, to, to deal with it. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why, you know, it is difficult for people to, you know, at the cash register, not to buy the candy bar because they want to reward themselves for having suffered through, you know, 30 or 40 minutes of shopping. Now, having said that, there are things that can be done. Uh, there's a association in the UK that um, the grocery stores are a part of, and they have they spent a year actually redesigning the grocery store and working with the retailers and others, and they were able to increase vegetable purchases by 16% just by redesigning the grocery store. And so, you know, there are things that we can do in order to just make the right choice, the easy choice. And I'm sure that no consumer, you know, came out thinking, oh, I just bought 16% more vegetables. You know, they don't even know that it happened. They just did it. And so that's part of what we need to find ways of doing. Well, and then the factual things about foods are on the back of the label. So it's got, you know, what the ingredients are and, and, uh, and that's not the sexy part of it. It's not the, the, the message that when you walk down the aisle, you know, it's got on the front of the package, it's something to make it appealing to you. Right. And, um, and that kind of leads to the other area that I see happening right now, people are paying attention to, and that is trying to create demand by saying, eating, suggesting eating this food will save the planet. Yeah. Or, or what's even more disturbing to me right now is not eating certain foods will destroy the planet, destroy the planet. And, and I can't even imagine how you can have hundreds of millions of consumers really understand all the implications of, of, of how people are, are pitching them and trying to appeal or to uh, guilt them into taking a certain approach to giving up a certain food or eating certain foods and buying from a certain company because of, of how they're dealing with climate change. It's so complex. How can that possibly right. translate into something? Again, you just communicate from the label on the part of on the front of a food package. Yeah, well, and remember, what's on the front of the food package is what the company wants to tell you. What's on the back of the food package is what the government wants you to know. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, there, there's a ton of evidence that shows that you know people don't really use nutrition information. Uh, they don't use it very well, and menu labeling is now required, but, you know, it, when they did this in uh, New York a, a few years before it was uh, nationwide, they found within a year or two, people just didn't even notice the nutrition information anymore. So it's hard to use facts and information to guide healthier outcomes. Now, when it comes to, you know, environmental choices, one is it probably isn't going to have that much of an influence anyway, but to the extent that it does, what's the problem is that, you know, food choices are just complicated. And when you're making a decision, you know, let's say I choose to buy organic for environmental reasons. Well, that may have a lower environmental impact on the farm that it was produced. On the other hand, if you need more farms because it's less productive, maybe you have to use more land. And 80% of deforestation is caused by agriculture because we're expanding land to produce that food. And so, you know, it, it's, there are always going to be these trade-offs when it comes to food. And 
you're not going to be able to figure that out with a single label, a single number. Um, you know, we really need to work as a have policies that are guiding and trying to balance, you know, as society, um, the trade offs between that local sustainability and that global sustainability of these products. Well, and it gets so complex, too, with the global, because as you well know, having worked on the global scene for the State Department and you've been involved in a lot of food issues, um, not every country is the same. I mean, here, if we say we're not going to be spraying certain poisons on a food just before it's time to ship, you can pretty much count on it that that's going to be the case. I'm sure you can think of a country or two that you would be suspect of their claim. And uh, that's hard for a consumer because in right. not every product even identifies them, let alone it might identify the country. And still the average consumer is just kind of guessing. They don't know, well, should I care whether this came from a, you know, a meat plant in, in this region of the world versus Denmark or Canada or the United States? There's, there's just so many things for, I think, the consumer to be concerned and suspicious and, and a little worried. Um, it's a big challenge to get the credibility, tell them the straight stuff, what they need to know, and have them have make sure that they know it's honest and straightforward, too. Yeah, I mean, trust in many ways is in short supply. And it's actually unfortunate because 100 years ago, you know, the Food and Drug Administration was established around 1904. And there were real food safety issues at that time, you know, both from disease as well as adulterated products, food fraud was rampant, you know, the, it was a real crisis back then, you know, but today, in many ways, our food has never been safer. And so while, you know, food fraud continues to exist, you know, there are places that are using um, pesticides and other things that are unapproved, by and large, testing of food products suggest that, you know, it's pretty safe. Consumers by and large should not be worried about the food they eat and the pesticide residues on the food are generally quite safe. And so the, the bigger danger is that people actually avoid healthy and nutritious food because of this fear. And every year the um, environmental working group comes out with its dirty dozen which lists the you know, 12 fruits and vegetables with the highest number of residues of pesticides. And uh, there's been research that suggests that low-income people will actually avoid all fruits and vegetables because of that, because they can't remember which 12. And so they're actually decreasing the nutritional health. So you know, there may be good reasons that they want to do that. You know, reducing pesticide residues is a generally great idea, but if it drives behavior that actually makes people less healthy and more scared of our food, right? You know, our food's never been safer and we've never been more worried. You know, that's, that's a problem. You know, we, we have access to such wonderful food today and we don't really enjoy it as much as we did, you know, 50 years ago, you know, wouldn't, you know, so I think that you need that balance of we need to be aware of these concerns. We need to continue to constantly improve our food system and the health and safety of our food, but we shouldn't fear it either. It's hard. It's hard. And I know of a study that was done in Chicago to the point that you were talking about earlier, where there was a, an area where people were actually were eating less uh, of, the, of the right kind of food because they had come to worry about the safety of fruits and vegetables. 
And mm-hmm. like, man, this is crazy. Uh, it's it's dangerous when it gets to that point. And that just leads to one more kind of final point I've got on my mind lately. And, and that is the role of, of media, because more than ever, they're kind of playing back to the consumers what they want to see or what they want to hear. And so rather than trying to say, well, slow down, think about this. On the other hand, and let me give you all the facts, they're quick to jump on it. One example that I've just heard about this week was actually uh, one of the magazines that said they're going to stop doing beef recipes and uh, because they've decided that uh, it's something they should do for the climate. Now, that's another whole podcast because I think there's uh, there's – a lot of differences in how beef is produced and um you know if people want to do something for the climate they need to skip their vacation and they could probably still have a hamburger once in a while with uh, in good conscience but still the fact that um that medium that don't have to have a, a degree in nutrition or anything can test the water and say i think people would like to hear me say this so let's just change our policy and we're going to take that position in all of the areas you're working in, I would, would suspect that media are playing a role in decisions made in the restaurants and the supermarkets. Yeah, well, you know, they're certainly amplifying messages. And, you know, this is what I call the tweetification of risk. Somebody says something and, you know, it goes to their 10 followers and their 1,000 followers. And, you know, soon enough, it's all the way around the world whether or not it's true. And, you know, it's very hard for the average consumer to, to figure out, you know, where the right information is. And, you know, we get information from so many different sources today that, you know, it really doesn't matter if sort of the mainstream media is, you know, conscious of, you know, the fact that they could be misleading the consumer. Um, there are just too many outlets that are just not at all worried about that. You know, the, the more worried people are, you know, that's clickbait. That's much more likely to be clicked on. And, you know, often the titles of the, the story are, you know, much more, you know, um, oh, you know, driven by, you know, excitement or uh, fear than the article itself. You know, they're trying to, to create that buzz. And I think it is dangerous because, again, you know, we need to make thoughtful decisions. And, you know, I, I had a back and forth with some journalists on Twitter uh, just yesterday on, you know, a similar issue. There was somebody commented on an article about reducing beef. And I, I said, well, Americans are overconsuming, So eating less, you know, is a good thing. On the other hand, the global uh, meat consumption is expected to increase by 50 to 100 percent by 2050. So we actually need a lot more animal protein. So why not talk about, you know, Americans scaling back our food consumption generally, which would include meat, but the U.S. is a fairly low uh, emission producer of meat. So we should probably be exporting that surplus. So if we eat less, somebody else could eat it because, you know, that if we don't produce it, that gap is going to be filled by countries like Brazil. And, you know, that may not have as good a, you know, carbon footprint as the beef that's produced here. And for American, you know, uh, producers, it's like, you know, if you're saying we want Americans to eat less, but we want you to sell more because you're a low carbon producer. Well, that that's not necessarily a message. I think that uh, livestock producers would be afraid to hear. Uh, They may feel like there's an opportunity there instead. 
Well, but again, it's like anything else. It's complicated because there's, uh, of all the Americans, there's some that eat almost nothing now. Some eat too little, should be eating more beef. Some eat too much, just like they eat too much of, of anything. And because we've gotten more efficient, we're now producing much more meat and dairy products with 90 million cows compared to back in the 70s, 110 million cows. Right. And if you compared that progress and said, if they'd done the same thing with cement or with uh, transportation or with uh, fuel, fossil fuel production, we wouldn't be talking about a global issue. If they had just kept up with how efficient the overall livestock industry in the United States has gotten, uh, there'd be no global issue. But see, you right. make me want to get on a soapbox. <laughs> Well, and, you know, many are saying that, you know, beef should be more expensive. And, you know, if, if it were more expensive, we'd consume less of it. And that might have a lower environmental footprint here in the U.S. But the reality is that, you know, before COVID hit, about 10% of Americans were food insecure. And over the last year, that's risen to as much as 20%, you know, at certain times. And so when you make something more expensive, it does have an impact on, you know, what do people switch to? You know, do they end up buying, you know, more ultra processed foods because they can't afford, you know, the meat itself. And so we don't necessarily know if that will lead to healthier food outcomes. So if you're going to have a policy that's sort of pro environment, but it undermines consumer health, I mean, you know, those are important trade-offs to take into consideration. There's a lot to consider, and you offer up a lot to be considered in, in the book. And, 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 and again, Jack, tell us the name of the book and, and why you think people would enjoy putting several evenings into going with you and that journey down your book. Well, so the book is Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And I think it's, it's not a diet book. It's really for anybody who has ever wondered, you know, why is it hard for me to make the good choice? And so the first third of the book is about our brain and how our brain sometimes leads us astray. And I think people will find the, the stories interesting. Uh, the next part of the book is about how our food environment is conspiring to, to make us fat and some of the history of how we got here, which, you know, I've already told you some of those stories. And I think, again, people will find them quite engaging. And then the third part is really how would we, how do we begin to reshape our food environment so that we can actually enjoy food more? And hopefully it's a future that's exciting to people, you know, where we get back, we don't have to count calories. We, you know, we don't have to agonize over the food choices that we're making. Um, you know, maybe we only lose one or two or three pounds a year, but if it happens year after year, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, we realize we've lost 30 or 40 pounds instead of gaining 40 or 50 pounds, which is the trend that we're on today. Jack, I don't even want to think about gaining that much weight, but I do like gaining this much insight into what's going on. And it's fun talking to you about what's happening and why we're doing what we're doing. And, and, and I guess just a final word, um, and that is what would make you optimistic that this trend line that we've been on since the 70s is, is going to flatten out now or start going the other direction? Well, I think there are a lot of threads that are coming together that make me hopeful. Um, there are programs like Wellville, which is a 
five different communities around America where people are trying to see if they can reshape those food environments. Um, that's led by Esther Dyson, who actually wrote the forward for my book. There are these blue zone projects in Houston and other places that are seeing if they can reshape the food environment. Uh, there are companies that are working on this. And so there are all of these individual initiatives that I think show glimmers of hope. And if we can bring those threads together, then all of a sudden it's not one community at a time, but it's society. And I think that's when you begin to uh, gain momentum. And again, it's not just the decisions we make in our home, but it's the decisions that are being made you know, everywhere we go need to be reinforcing what we do at home instead of fighting against it. Well, with that hopeful note, that's a good place to wrap up. So, Jack Bobo, thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. <laughs>